in in you know in the sorry I forgot to turn my microphone on. Uh, be with us in the uh, in the congregation today and be with me, Lord. Uh, my uh, you know where my heart is. You know the struggle I've had with the the sermon writing process this week. You know where uh, where you want me to go. I pray that you would help me to get there uh, without following too many rabbit trails or detours. Um, I pray for your uh, grace on all of us this morning that that most of all we would hear from Jesus, that most of all Christ would be in our midst, that we would stand uh, with him and and be filled with him and surrounded by him, uh, and that we would know him more through just hearing Solomon's words this morning. Christ name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this is, uh, wow, I don't know. Um, where where this is on the uh, scale of the end of Ecclesiastes for the summer or for the year, uh, is sort of up in the air. A lot will depend on time uh, today, and so uh, we'll see where we end up, okay? This is a rewritten uh, and then rewritten and then rewritten message, um, and so uh, uh, bear with me. I'm going to do my best. Uh, when I was growing up, my dad, so my dad's first master's degree, I say first master's degree, my dad is far more educated than I am and, and just a brilliant, uh, interesting guy. And, and his first master's degree is in history. And he is, uh, he is just the most interesting guy to talk to about ancient military and warfare and Roman culture and the Byzantine Empire and all of that. And so I grew up watching movies and talking about like the ancient world and, and everything else, and I, I loved it. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, the ancient military world. And actually, I decided to use a couple of uh, visual aids this morning. And uh, since I started with a video clip last week from a movie, can anybody tell me what my movie is this week? The 200. It is not. Who said Gladiator? <laughs> this, is, uh, this is a scene from uh, The 300, which is a fictional presentation of the uh, Battle of Thermopylae, which I am horribly pronouncing, and I don't care. Um, and it's interesting to me because I thought this was a fun movie, but, like, if you know that much about ancient Greece, um, like, every Greek army would fight a certain way. They would fight using what's called a phalanx, right? Like, they would stand end-to-end, and your shoulder, your shield would cover the guy next to you, right? So your shield was important. It would cover the guy next to you, and you would have a spear, and then you would march into the enemy line, and whoever gave up first, like playing chicken only really slow and stupid, uh, whoever, like, collapsed first lost, right? And the 300 is neat because, like, every once in a while, they would do these scenes that are supposed to represent what it looked like. Only, like, in the movie, they would be in formation for about eight seconds, and then everybody would run in a different direction, Right? Like the whole movie, like, like the, the commander, uh, the king talks about, you know, stand together and fight as a unit. And if you can't cover the guy next to you, and they cover each other for like no time at all. And then everybody goes out on their own on a field trip to fight different guys. And like that's the way Greek literature is, but it's not how they actually fought, right? Like their stories would be about individual glory and everything else. But like when they would fight, it was like this. You would have a spear that was about 20 feet long. And most of your energy was devoted to holding that stupid spear up and creating a wall that was so long that the enemy couldn't get near you. Everybody got it? And if you ran away from these guys with your spear to fight other people, number one, you're running with a, I don't even know what to call it. We don't have like 
poles we carry along that are carry around there that long. It's ridiculous, right? Like they are specifically designed to fight together, right? And there's a reason for that. It's because one guy by himself is a really crummy army. Everybody following me? You know the modern army logo, an army of one. Nope. There's no such thing as an army of one. And the further back you go, the less technology you have to play with, you really needed other guys, right? Um, We're going to talk a little bit about Roman armor today, that one passage that every pastor loves to beat to death. Uh, I found a Haynes manual for Roman armor, so I'm going to be talking to my farmer friends to see if anybody can help me build one. Um, But if you look at, like, the Roman soldier, these guys were terrifying. To a degree, like in the ancient world, these guys kicked everybody's uh, backsides and and they were tough and they were unbeatable. But there's some interesting things here because we like to think about individuals in our time like their shields are sort of square, right? They're square so that they can stand next to the guy next to them and create a wall because they're only designed to fight as a line. Everybody with me? Their spears are kind of weird, right? Like they get at this heavy shaft and then this really narrow thing. And it's because, like this javelin, what they would do is, as the enemy was marching up, you'd throw the javelin at their shield. And it would stick in the shield, and the end of this would bend. I stupid, I need a better laser pointer. Um, it would bend, and it would dig into the ground, and it would make it so they couldn't walk in a line. And once their line broke up, it was easier to break their soldiers. Do you understand? Because if you weren't fighting as a unit, you were weak. And so that spear is only designed to break the line. Um, And then finally, the sword is called a gladius. It's right there, right? It is a tiny, tiny... When we think of swords, we think of William Wallace and Braveheart and Mel Gibson. I I don't know. You all saw that, right? And he had that, like, 40-foot sword that makes no sense, right? Like, two hands and, like, a buddy to carry it with you. Um... You know, these swords, they were like as long as your forearm. And the idea of the gladius was you would stand as close as you could to the guy next to you, and you would fight with this tiny little sword. And then, like when they fought the barbarians, my German ancestors, who fought these guys with giant battle axes and swords, they couldn't stand close together. So that one guy with a battle axe who looks real impressive, like on a Viking movie, he's fighting eight Romans by himself. Because they're all packed together with their tiny little short swords. And you know what? It was awesome. It worked. The Romans were practically unbeatable in their time, unless they fought somebody. Well, I don't want to get into that. Um, But what made them amazing, what made them so tough, was that they could stand in a line and you couldn't do anything to them. Everything they did was designed like a puzzle piece. Or like a piece of a a combine, I assume. Every combine system is roughly connected to every other one, right? I'm guessing. I have no idea. I assume everything is connected together and one thing breaks and it all falls apart, right? I assume that it breaks constantly. I don't know anything about combines. I should shut up. Uh, But here's the thing. It didn't end then. When you get into the modern era, it always seemed so silly to me as a kid when the Redcoats, you see them in movies standing really close together and walking down a field, and you think, what is wrong with these people, right? Why would you fight like that? You're standing there in a red coat, number one, and, like, you're all standing out there waiting to get shot. Here's the thing. Um, At 75 yards, 
the chances of hitting a target, a man-sized target, with a smoothbore rifle, like they had Civil War as well, except that's when the mini ball came out and all that, like was zero. Everybody with me? And so you would stand in a line and shoot at the enemy line because it was the only way you were likely to hit something. Because if you throw enough lead down the field, eventually you might hit something. But mostly, you know, you'd miss probably five out of six shots. And you know why? Because <laughs> the technology was awful. And because if you didn't fight as a group, you were worthless. Everybody with me? I, all right. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, I, but he killed himself a bear when he was only three. He didn't use a musket. He used his bare hands, like me. Uh, I don't know. What do I say to that? Like, <laughs> um, so, like, I, I kind of want to touch on this idea. For the majority of history, and still today, militaries and armies and soldiers, they do not fight individually. They integrate into each other. And they fight as a group. Even today, actually, there are these guys uh, whose job is to sit on a battlefield, like a modern American you know, military thing, and they coordinate who shoots what when, right? They're the Air Force version of Special Forces. It's really neat. So we're going to be working on Ecclesiastes 4.12, and probably only half of 4.12, okay? And I apologize for that. I, I really wrestled with this. I really wanted to do the whole thing, but I don't want to go an hour. So, uh, you know... Um, And the idea here is we're going to talk about as believers, as like the body of Christ, as people, we're designed to take up for each other. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're designed to watch out for each other, to to have each other's back, so to speak. I was really hoping not to use that phrase. Um, But we do so by being integrated into each other's lives. Every aspect of what it means to follow Christ is interconnected with every aspect of what it means to be a part of the church and connected to other believers. Everybody still with me? Um, No different than the Romans, and Paul talks about that. We'll get to it. But we as believers, this is what we're called to be. So we have three examples from Solomon in his book. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We've been very slowly working through this chapter. Uh, And I'm sorry it's going to go a little longer, but it's too much fun. Um, And so this is a poem, and there's two halves to the poem. The first half is about work getting out of control and dominating everything in life. None of the men in Montana do this, right? No wives are looking at their husbands. None of them are nudging, none of that, right? Like, so this is me preaching to the choir. But, like, the first section of this chapter is all about how work is a gift from God, but it destroys our lives if we let it become an idol. And so we talk about that, and then... Solomon shifts gears, and he begins to talk about, in the second half of this poem, he offers three examples to counter his three examples of work out of control, and he offers these three examples of what is better. And the hinge verse is, two are better than one, because they have a better return for their labor. Meaning, if there is more than one of you, you will get a better return. The most obvious read on that is, if you've got a bunch of guys, they'll clean the room faster, unless they're, they're your children. In which case, <laughs> 90% of your time is saying, kids, clean it, and then eventually giving up and doing it yourself. Um, but it's not just about doing more work faster. It's about life being better, right? And we can all, I, I think everybody in the world knows this, life is better when you're connected to the people around you, right? 
Life is better when you have close friends. Life is better when you can reach out to someone and say, I, I'm stuck in the mud. I need you to come get me. Not that that would happen to anyone this week. Um, but two are better than one because they have a better return for their labor. And we work through each of these examples, right? If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. And we talked about, like, the actual physical danger involved in traveling in the ancient world. And we also talked about falling into sin or collapsing in our life commitments or making terrible temptation-type choices and having people around you to say, get your head on straight and stop it. Right. Having relationships where people can say, hey, you're messing up. Stop. Hey, get it together. Um, You know, or where we can encourage each other, what have you. So if someone falls down, someone's there to pick them up. Uh, But pity anyone who has falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if one or if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? That was the second example. And we talked about the ancient world and the cold and dying of exposure. But we also sort of related this to like relationship in life like when you have somebody that dies and you have people who love you and care about you and will say i'm here for you right um so we're going to come to our last instance of this and that's the need for protection like we what solomon is saying is community makes life better and he's giving examples from traveling in the ancient world where you might get hurt and need somebody to help you you might need warmth Or you might need protection from bandits or people on the road who are looking to rob you or what have you. Like, like we need community in those times that we need protection. And here's the verse. Everybody's going to look and say, wait a minute. Why is he talking about military and war and fighting when this is a marriage verse? It's not a marriage verse. And I'm not going to try and connect fighting to marriage because nobody does that. Though one may be overpowered... Two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. And so the idea in the immediate is if you're traveling in the ancient world on one of these roadways, uh, someone might come along and try to kill you and take your stuff, right? And so it's better to have other guys with you because you're defended. And the more the merrier, right? Because standing and fighting together is safer and easier than fighting by yourself. Um, There are a couple of different ways to consider this text, and I'm going to take a different tack this week just because this is really where I got bogged down. I'm going to tell you. This this was fun. It was interesting. First off, the last line there, a a cord of three strands cannot quickly be broken. There is some pretty strong evidence that that line predates Solomon's writing by a thousand plus years. Everybody with me? Um, the Epic of Gilgamesh, you probably had to read it in high school and didn't, um, uses this line. And, like, there's a couple of other little hints in ancient literature, like, not just the Sumerian thing, but, like, ancient literature, that this may have been a proverb that was all over the world and everybody knew it. And Solomon took a popular proverb and folded it into his text. And so, like, it's easy to read that and say, oh, well, that's interesting, he borrowed something. But it does set this apart And it makes it so there may be a weird little cool hidden treasure in it. And we'll get to that probably next week because I'm going to run out of time. Um, So this cord of three strands is not easily broken. Seeing the last line is a proverb, right? Like that's one way to read it. Oh, my gosh. The Internet is not working right today. 
Uh, or we can read through verse 12 as a whole unit. Everybody with me? That's what we're going to do today. Um, first off, if we do it that way, we get this one, two, three thing. And it sounds kind of neat to read it that way, right? Though one may be overpowered, two defend themselves, and a three-chord strand. And that's kind of a cool like play on words, right? Like for ancient literature, this was the way they talked. This is the way they wrote. Um, and it does create kind of an interesting read. And seeing that one, two, three thing gives us a couple of hints as to what might be meant, meant by the wordplay. First off, um, the addition of the third might like point to the idea that like the bigger your community, the better, right? I, uh, when we moved here, it was me and Jess and Abigail. And uh, I think if Abby had her wish, it would have been me and Jess and Abigail forever. Um, but I used to go, when I first came, I would go to the nursing home and I would visit um, a woman who was there who was on hospice and had been on hospice for a long time. And Abby would sit on her bed and play. And she was just a little over one year old. And it was Clara. Do you guys remember Clara? Does anybody know Clara? Like, she was awesome. And I would talk to her, and she spent hours telling me about her great-grandchildren, like all 80 of them, right? I, it wasn't 80, but there were a lot of them. And it was obvious. I went out, like, one night, like, when, you know, I went out and visited regularly, and there were family everywhere. And I watched Clara in this nursing home, surrounded by people, facing, like, the end of her life, surrounded by her children and grandchildren. And it was amazing, it was a blessing to see. Does that mean that not having children is like this horrible thing? No, because we have other avenues of community. But watching Clara and watching her with her talk about her kids and everything else, I said, oh, my goodness, we need to have more children. And then Titus came along and convinced me otherwise, that two was enough. And now we got Josh, too, in there somewhere. Oh, my gosh, I should just stop. Uh, I love you, Titus. I, sorry. Um, and so this larger community thing, like, like the cool thing about love is, you know, if I have to love three kids, it's not like I have less love to spread around. I got more love because my life is fuller, right? If I have brothers and sisters in Christ, if I've got people that pray for me and pray with me and that I like get together with and talk with and share community with, it's not like I have less to give out. I have more because in that connection, I become more Christ-like. It changes my heart and it changes my life. And that one, two, three thing points in the direction of a larger version, a better version of life that I learned from Clara. Because the more kids she had around her, the more you could see she overflowed with that relational family love. And I was like, man, I want that, right? Everybody still with me? And this is the way it is with the church. We look for brothers and sisters in Christ, and we rejoice when we have the opportunity to connect to each other because it is awesome. It also emphasizes the connection of a community to God himself. Why is that? Well, this is the marriage cliche, right? A husband, a wife, and Jesus. Because a husband and a wife, if they are living their own path, can fight very easily. I am here to tell you, I, I've been married for 25 years, and fighting is one of our national pastimes in my house. Or home, I don't know. Anyway, it's our hobby. Uh, and we fight more when we are on opposite teams. When we stop and pray and remember, hey, we're united in Christ. I'm commanded to be Jesus to my wife. 
We are commanded to glorify God in our relationship. We're commanded to imitate Christ in the church. We're commanded to this. We're commanded to that. All of a sudden, we're aligned and we're stronger because there is a third strand woven through our lives. And so when we read this, like part of the idea here, is it Solomon's original intent? Um, Probably not specifically about Jesus. Uh, But I would argue that if you look at chapter 3 and then this, there's a pretty strong connection between the idea of community and walking before God and doing his will. Um, It is a blessing to operate with Christ in a community, to encounter Christ in those around us, to, to know his grace when the people around us forgive us because we're not perfect. I know it's hard to believe I'm not perfect, but it is a blessing. So, like, this is the original text. Like, if we look at it from the original eye view, apart from the weird other one we're going to talk about next week, this is the, like, base level read on it. Now we're going to talk about it in terms of Jesus, okay? Um, First off, the church is designed to be unified, it is crazy to me. I've been in church world for, in church, professional church work for 24 years-ish, right, dear? Is that about right? Um, I have uh, been a Christian for 30-ish years, and um, as a follower of Jesus, I have never seen a church have a huge blow-up fight about a scriptural issue. Isn't that weird? We never fight about the Bible. We never fight about Jesus. We never fight about Scripture. We never fight about anything else. We fight about carpet, and we fight about whether or not we're going to pass the offering plate or just put it in the back, um, which we might reintroduce here because of COVID uh, being over theoretical. I don't know. I get into that. Sorry. Um, like there are, or, hey, you used an organ and not enough hymns and too many contemporary songs, and that drum set is of the devil and all these other things. Like we fight about stuff that has nothing to do with Jesus. And ultimately, Christ said the strongest thing. He said it about Satan, actually. He said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If that is true of Satan and the fallen angels, it darn well better be true about us too, right? We will not stand as the body of Christ if we fight each other, if we are not standing together. If we emulate the Greeks in the 300 and everybody rushes off for their own glory while there's a battle in front of us. It's easy to do, though, isn't it? I got so many things to worry about that Jesus is not high on my list sometimes. Um, I have so many things to worry about that my brother in Christ, you know, like like growing spiritually is not always at the top of my list. I suspect that there are a lot of people in the room that can say that. Is there? It's easy to say, I know my shield covers the guy to my right. I know my sword only works right if I'm standing with the guys around me. It's easy to say that, but then to add on, but I got these things to do. But if I don't go fight, I don't get my personal glory. If I don't, hey, I need to go back and get to the the chow line before the battle's over. I won't get the right, you know, the best slice of pizza or whatever. I don't know. Um, And so we as Christians need to understand that the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, is designed to be unified. And it's designed to be unified in Christ. Because Christ died for us. Because we're emulating Christ as we become new people. Because we are changing and being sort of rearranged and reformed to look like Jesus. Everything that we do is supposed to look like that. And you never see Jesus emphasizing, like, destroying the fellowship over anything. Except when somebody, like we see in Paul, where people like, you know, hey, 
You get a member of your church that's, you know, moved in with his mother-in-law and is having a romantic relationship. Kick that guy out. Don't let him hang out. Like, we don't put up with that. Right? But it's never over things like, I don't want donuts. I want cookies in the morning. I had somebody call and yell at me about that once years and years ago from a church I was at where they're like, you brought donuts. What is wrong with you? Sorry. I... <laughs> um, second, if we read Paul, there's not a single spot where we do not encounter, like a single letter from Paul, a single like body of writing, where Paul does not emphasize um, unity in the church. Unity in the church is at the forefront of what Paul talks about. And part of the reason for that is is because we live in a fallen, broken, hostile world, and there's a part of us that is like sinful, that's at war with ourselves, right? That's in Romans. We're at war with our own members to commit sin, and like I suspect most people know what that's like, right? When you're, I don't get into it anyway. Um, it is so easy to be in that spot where we're, you're fighting with yourself and the world around you, and if you do not have, like the, like the Greeks, you don't have that shield, from the guy next to you covering you, you're in trouble. And that's what we're called to be. Um, We're going to dig into Paul a little more um, as far as where we're going with this, but it's important to understand first and foremost that um, the defense, the fighting, the battle aspect of this is not about bandits and bad guys, right? It's very popular nowadays to talk about, like, the church against the world, I'm going to carry my gun, Like, that's not what we're talking about. Everybody with me? I carry a gun sometimes, too. It's not that. It is the purpose of the church is to change the world, not by the sword, but by the gospel. And so when we get into, like, Ephesians 6, which we're going to dig into here, um, and I've talked about fighting and soldiers and everything else. There's no way I wasn't going here. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take Hold on. Did I? I cut a verse. Um, Oh, no, I didn't. All right, here we are. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, say that again, for our struggle, referring to the church. Amen. Thank you for, (laughs) for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What's he saying? He's saying that we as a group, we're not fighting governments. We're not fighting our neighbor. We're not fighting armies. We're fighting spiritual battles. Because you can kill my body. The rest of me, the part of me that matters, will live forever. You cannot kill that, right? Like Jesus said, you know, don't be afraid of the one who can, like, kill your body. Be afraid of the one who can throw the rest of you into hell. Um, I, that was a paraphrase, or it was from the message, I'm not sure. Um, and so what he's saying here is he's saying, listen, there's all kinds of stuff in this world that will try to knock us down, that will push against our line, that will attack us, and our heart and our mind and our feet and our everything needs to be aligned in such a way as to where we're moving forward. And when he goes into this next section, which everybody knows really well, um, therefore put on the full armor of God, oftentimes we read that and we think, oh, this is a direction for me, right? But our is how he described the group in the previous verse, right? Now, admittedly, the you's in this are in the singular, right? Like they're second person singular, Um, but... 
you still does kind of refer to the church. It refers to individuals because if we go out to fight a battle and I'm the guy who shows up without armor or my shield or my sword because I forgot them today, like Josh forgetting his trumpet before he goes to school for band practice, um, like I'm not useful. I'm not. In fact, I'm a liability at that point. I, I could pretend I can play trumpet, you know, make little noises with my mouth, but I'm not playing trumpet. If one of us doesn't show up, then the rest of us are without. Somebody ain't getting covered by that shield. Somebody is not going to have that spear next to them to help protect them. Like, this is not the way we're designed to go. We're designed to operate as a unit and be strong as a unit. And so this direction is individual, but it also describes, as any military thing would, um, the responsibility of a member of a larger whole. And so what he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which will extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Um, Now, here's the trick. The second most useless guy on the battlefield, not just the guy who didn't bring his stuff, is the guy who puts all this stuff on and doesn't know how to use it. And guess how you learn to use it? Generally, you find a sparring partner and you learn it. Right? The purpose of the church is to be the line, but it's also to train together and to learn together and to operate as a unit. The, these soldiers, like, it's actually really interesting if you watch, like, like uh, recreations of how these guys would move. And, like, even during the, the era where guys were walking in a line with a musket, they would blow a horn, and just based on the sound of the horn, they would all rearrange and find a new position, right? Like, and it's kind of awesome because they've spent so much time training that they could do it in their sleep. And if somebody missteps, the guy next to them is like, hey, Because everybody knows their part and everybody knows everybody else's part. And so we as believers need to operate together in close community, in relationship. And we need to be prepared not just for ourselves, not just wearing the breastplate of righteousness so that I don't get destroyed, but so that I can be there to stand next to the guy who's relying on me. Who's the guy in the pew next to you. Who's the guy in the pew behind you. Um, Dads, that's you for the rest of your family. Because your kids look at you and they will learn who God is by watching you. Not by listening to you, because they don't listen. But they emulate everything they do. You ever notice when your kids make that face that you make? They're learning. They will learn what it means to follow Jesus, to be a godly man, to be a righteous man by watching you. You are the one who should be up front carrying the sword and the shield and the buckler and everything else. Because they're going to follow you by merit of your position, by merit of you, who you are. Um, and so finally, we're going to talk about this idea real quick. Among soldiers, the more unified, the more connected they are, the better they are, right? I, uh, when I was doing last two weeks ago, the Mafia and the Band of Brothers, the thing I kept coming across when I was re- researching the Band of Brothers idea from Shakespeare is throughout history, you see where soldiers talk about other soldiers being brothers because they went through fire and hell together, right? Because they slept on the ground and ate awful food and everything else. Like, 
Um, and I don't think that's unique to just war. I think there are guys who do hard work together and they become brothers. I think there are guys who experience difficulty and they become brothers. I, I know guys who've been in like AA for 20, 30 years and you talk to them and those guys like they become family. You know why? Because they've dragged each other out of a hole together. It's, this is a life-changing process. And for us, as we unify, as we draw closer together, we become the body. We become God's army. We may not ever march in the infantry or fly in the cavalry or shoot the artillery or anything else. But if you don't show up, if you don't show up and stand in the line next to the guy by you, it's incomplete. There's a vital piece missing. You pursuing your spiritual health is vital for your kids and for your wife and for the guy next to you and for the guy who might get gossiped about this week and you're the guy who gets to say, hey, that's not true, knock it off, right? The guy who needs somebody to pray for him, the guy who needs to be called out in the most loving and patient and wonderful way possible by a dear friend, that's your job. If you don't show up and play a part in it, you're not doing your job. Um, I'm going to stop my slides there because everything else is going to go to next week. Okay. I, uh, probably the best analogy I've seen for this um, is sheepdogs. Uh, there's a pastor over in, uh, he's in Helena now. He used to be in, uh, I don't know, the bad end of the state. Uh, and and he, he raised sheepdogs. And their whole purpose was to kill anything that came near the sheep. That's it. Right. And actually, I was over at the Durgas and I think I think it was John warned me. Don't don't get don't get too close to the sheep without me because like it ain't going to go well. Right. Because the dog doesn't know me and the dog does know that his job is to protect the sheep. Like if we are going to be a three stranded cord with Christ being in us and the body of Christ woven together, part of what we need to do is learn to open our eyes and watch we need to watch our kids because people will lie to them all the time. And they do. People hunt for them because they know that they can victimize them. Children are easy to victimize. I worked in a place where we dealt with kids like that who had been abused in one way or another or drawn into crime or whatever, like all kinds of crazy stuff. There are people in this world who are like that. But spiritually, there are people who would love nothing more than to draw young minds to their way of thinking and away from the God of the Scriptures. I'm not being alarmist. I'm not being crazy. I'm telling you, our job is to be like the sheepdogs. Our job is to watch. Our job is to live the life of protection over the body of Christ. Not just men, moms, children, everything. This is who we're supposed to be. We guard the truth and we carry it everywhere we go and we distribute it like free water on a hot day. How do we do that? Well, we spend time together. We discuss scripture together. We pray for each other. We pray with each other. We train each other in how to do stuff better. This morning I had this weird realization that there's about two dozen guys I've known in the last 20 years that I looked at them and I said, I don't know why that guy is so awesome, but I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to do the same thing. And so then I watch them and study them and steal their stories. I do. Uh, And imitate their habits and... Sometimes even I hear them coming out of my mouth because I steal how they talk. And I've definitely done that, and I'm a little embarrassed that I practiced it. But this is what we're to be for each other, right? The body of Christ, something to imitate. Like Paul said, imitate me like I imitate Christ. 
And so we train, we guide, we grow, we stand together. Because if we don't stand together, we will collapse. The church will collapse. The other thing that we do is we keep each other pointed in the right direction. In the fog of war with smoke and fire and screaming and everything else and panic, it is easy to get turned around. If you do not have a guy in the line next to you pointing you in the right direction, and particularly men, because we like to do things our own way. We like to be cowboys like John Wayne. John Wayne never needed other soldiers. I mean, he never probably actually fought in a war either, but like whatever. Like it's, it's not a thing. I, we're designed to point each other, to lift each other up, to keep each other warm, and to walk together into this world and change it. My challenge for you today is to look at your life. And some of y'all promised this on your wedding day. I will be one strand in a three-strand cord. How you doing with it? It's not like it went away, right? Like you promised. You promised in front of God. Like, how you doing with it? Are you working on it? Is it just something you said on the day of because it's something you're supposed to say because it sounds pretty and your wife wanted you to say it? Or your husband, whatever. We have to work together. We have to work at this. It is not instant. It is not easy. It is not automatic there's a life following christ as you look at your family are you one of the cords that is keeping it strong as you look at the church are you one of the cords keeping it strong as you look at young believers are you one of the people walking with them helping them train and grow one of the cords that keeps it strong what are you doing this is one of those questions you have to turn a spotlight on because with the others, letting somebody fall down and not picking them up is insane, right? Like nobody would ever let somebody collapse in the weight of their own life and leave them there. Nobody would let somebody mourn or whatever and be alone. But in this, we would say, yeah, maybe that's not my fight. Maybe it's not my job. Hey, I got my own fight over here. It's going to look really awesome. You 300, 299, stay over there. I'm going to go do my thing over here. It's not what we're called to be. This is uh, the first Sunday of the month. On the first Sunday of the month, we do communion. I'm going to call my guys forward.